It says, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Father, we humbly ask that as we open the word of God now, that you would just prepare our hearts by your spirit, that Lord, you take away the distractions from within us and among us, that Lord, we might reverently be able to hear what the voice of your spirit would say to us through the word of God this morning. Speak to us, Lord, and bless your word. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. Now, even as in every marriage where you have two different people sharing a life together, there's always, as a result, going to be challenges to work through from time to time. Uh, when in the same way you have in every family multiple people who are living and functioning day after day and week after week, all under the same roof, there's going to be issues that arise. There are going to be frustrations that happen in a family. There are misunderstandings from time to time and problems to work through. Well, in the same way, the exact thing applies within the church. God's family. It's a much bigger family, but it's a family nonetheless where brothers and sisters and people are assembled together doing life together as God's children. The same is to be expected. There is no such thing as any church fellowship that will not have its periodic challenges and problems and times where there are misunderstandings or issues to kind of work out. Uh, whenever you mix people and activity, inevitably there are going to be problems. There are going to be differences of ideas and differences of opinions and personalities and to not be aware nor anticipate nor accept the reality that there will be from time to time problems or challenges or things to work through honestly is very naive. Quite frankly, it's just unrealistic. Uh, it's just not a reality. It doesn't matter whether we are Christians who love Jesus or the most ungodly people. We are all different by design. And when you rub iron together, the Bible says iron sharpens iron. However, when you rub two pieces of iron together, there are also sparks, if you didn't notice. And it happens from time to time. So these are just natural, normal things. And if we're not aware, willing to accept that reality happens from time to time, even within the church, it also leads to reacting from what I've seen in observation of 20 years of, of senior pastoral ministry. It leads to people reacting in overly dramatic ways. 
and making more out of something that really needs to be made out of it, which can become very unfortunate and sometimes even a foothold for the devil to begin to work. Problems can sometimes be good things, right? You have a health problem in your body. It's not really perhaps seen as a good thing, but maybe the recognition or diagnosis of that problem leads to something good because it perhaps then is something that gets addressed and you adjust and you do what you need to do to lead towards a path of health or something that may be better for the body. Well, the same thing with all problems. Problems sometimes help us make needful adjustments to establish priorities, to implement a plan so that we can continue to make progress in the right direction. It's how we work through problems. And if we we seek for good and godly solutions that's what matters most and really that is what we see illustrated in our text this morning in this next picture of early church life uh, again we see another snapshot of some of the atmosphere of the early church and we see the family is growing more things are now going on there's extra activity and they have to work through some challenges as we see here in Acts chapter 6 and come up with a suitable and a godly resolution they have to kind of navigate some things that they're trying to figure out they have to make some adjustments they have to establish some priorities and implement something that would help because God was kind of creating a good problem and there are bad problems and good problems and one of the things I say in my household a whole lot is, look, there are bad problems, but there are also good problems. Uh, this was a good problem. They were having things going on that was causing a good problem, but they needed to figure out how to navigate it, as we see in our text this morning. They've already overcome persecution and resistance from those outside of the church. We saw in Acts chapter 5, they had to deal with sin and hypocrisy and unhealthy people within the church. Now what we find them addressing in Acts chapter 6 is confronting just some practical logistical problems due to differences of perspective in the functions of the church and how things were operating. So look with me in verse 1 as we look through this together. It says verse 1 of chapter 6, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So here describes the problem in verse 1 there. The church was growing. More things are now happening as the result of that. There's now, therefore, more opportunity for issues to arise among people as there are more gears turning and they're spinning more tops and there's more activity. There's just greater opportunity for differences of opinions and disagreements. And notice in verse one, as it describes the believers, the Christians in the early church there, here's the first time as we see the early church described that we find it described in verse one there as says the number of disciples. There's the first time our word disciples shows up. It will be one of the more predominant terms used to describe Christians as we go throughout the book of Acts. And a disciple is basically a term that describes someone who is a dedicated learner. It's somebody that is more than just kind of uh, you know, an observant. Uh, it's someone who's an actual participant. It's not someone who's just a spectator. It's someone who's a diligent student. A disciple was a term that was used even outside of Christianity to refer to someone who was committed to learning and following the ways of their master. 
That's what a disciple was. They had a master or a rabbi or teacher and they were committed to observing and learning the ways and the understandings of that particular master. And so the Bible refers to these early believers in the church as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they saw themselves as. That's really what Jesus wanted. Remember Matthew 28, Jesus said, go into all the world. And he didn't say make converts of all the nations. He said, make disciples. Converts, yes, first converted to Christ, saved, but that they would then progress to becoming disciples, committed followers of Jesus as our master, wanting to learn his ways and live those ways ourselves in obedient service. And notice the number of disciples, here's the key word that causes the challenges in verse one, the number of disciples, it says, was multiplying. Now, thus far in the first five chapters of the book of Acts, we've seen the numbers of the disciples in the church kept increasing and increasing. Remember Acts chapter one, right after Jesus ascended into heaven, it said there were about 120 disciples gathered in that upper room together. But then as we went on Acts two at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, it said 3000 souls were added that day that Peter preached the gospel to them. And then in Acts two, again, we read at the end of the chapter, the Lord added daily to the church, those being saved. In Acts 4, verse 4, it says, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And then just last week in Acts 5, we read the believers were increasingly being added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So notice, we now read the number of the disciples was multiplying. Thus far, we've read the Lord added, believers were added. Now the text changes and says the number of disciples was multiplying. Multiplication is much faster increase than addition. What the Bible's describing is this was a time in this church of rapid growth. In these early stages, this church was having a rapid growth experience. There were numbers of people getting saved very quickly. It means that therefore there was way more going on. There was a lot happening because the church was growing very, very quickly. And that typically results, if you would, in kind of some, you might say, growing pains. The Bible refers to Christians collectively as the body of Christ. And so these were kind of like growing pains for this early church because it was growing very quickly, not just adding, but multiplying now in disciples. And even as a growing human body needs to adjust to handle the growth, and even as, let's say, a growing family needs to adjust to handle growth, and even as a growing business may need to make some adjustments in how it functions, the same is true with church families from time to time. With growth, which is a good problem, comes the need for adjustments. They just go hand in hand. It's not a bad thing. It's just something that's a reality. That with growth, there's a need to be flexible and adjust and relook at things and, you know, kind of be patient and flexible. So the issue surfaces in verse one. It says that during this time with that happening, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because it says their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now take note, there it is right in your Bible, not just mine. Right in the Bible, a normal church, a healthy church, had complaints that arose. Imagine that. It's right there in the Bible. 
People were actually complaining. Something was transpiring in the ministry life, in the church life. It caused offense, and as a result, a complaint arose. One group started complaining about another group, and one person was complaining about another person. Why are we doing it this way, and how come this, and why are things being handled like that? And and, and again, this complaint began to arise among them. The situation, we're told, was the daily distribution for the widows. In other words, it was sort of a a ministry of benevolence care for the widows that were within the church. The Bible teaches very clearly, especially the Old Testament, great emphasis upon this, that widows and orphans, particularly in this ancient culture, were among the most vulnerable in society. We have to understand widows in that day, especially if they did not have children to care for them, the widows and orphans were the most vulnerable to fall into poverty, to not be able to survive, to get by. They didn't have opportunity to work and sustain themselves. Though the church here, we see, felt honor bound by God's heart expressed in the word of God regarding God's concern for caring for widows and orphans and those who were really in a vulnerable state. The church felt honor-bound to help take care of these weak and vulnerable individuals among the church family. Notice, they're caring for the widows, the orphans, the weak, impoverished, and vulnerable within the church family. And please take note in the Bible that the primary commitment and role of the church providing financial, benevolence, care, and assistance was typically within the church family not taking the church coffers and all the church finances and going helping everyone in the unsaved world to almost try and sort of sometimes like buy them off for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. The church was sharing the gospel, but predominantly the church cared for its own foremost financially. That was the primary thrust that we see in the Bible anyway of how they would manage these kind of things. They would use a portion of the church resources to provide assistance to these widows who fell into need at times. If you want to research a little further, write in your Bible or notes 1 Timothy chapter 5 because there a whole section, 1 Timothy 5, a pastoral epistle, is dedicated to describe the protocol and the guidelines and even the qualifications that they were to use for who was considered someone that they should actually give financial assistance to in this category of the distribution of the widows that we even have being described here. There was protocol that they followed. They didn't just freely give resources out. The Bible actually gave criteria and standards. They were to to evaluate who really needed assistance. One of the main standards was this. 1 Timothy 5 says that if a person had relatives, children, grandchildren, immediate family who could care for them, that family should take care of their own families first so that the church would then be able to help someone who genuinely had a need and nobody else could help them. Maybe they didn't have a family or nobody who could assist. And so again, there are these qualifications that were put there of what's being described here is this distribution of the widows where some daily amount of food or finances was a daily distribution was given to some of the widows in the church to help their need this was a good thing a godly loving ministry and however as this was expanding and probably growing that's where verse 1 says the problem arises where the Hellenists began to complain against the Hebrews that their widows were being neglected now you may read that verse 1 Hellenist Hebrews what's that a reference to well uh, let me explain but let me say this take notice in the church family there were different groups of people 
living and functioning together within the same church. The Hebrews is a reference to Jews who lived inside of Israel, predominantly around Judea and Jerusalem, and therefore they spoke the Hebrew or Aramaic language, and their lifestyles were rooted in traditional Hebrew culture. Hebrew practices. The Hellenists that are described there is a reference to Jews who lived outside of Israel. Remember Acts chapter 2, people came from all different countries. Hellenists is a Greek term. It referred to those Jews who lived outside of Israel and other lands. So often they would speak another language and their lifestyles were shaped by the customs and practices of the Greek culture of that day. So they had different customs that were shaped by the Greco-Roman culture that existed. So you might say, kind of again, the, the Hebrews were sort of the conservative folks within the church. They, they loved tradition, long-standing tradition. The Hellenists, they would kind of be like the modernists within the church. They embraced a lot of the current world culture, the Greek culture, and so they just kind of adopted a lot of that in their practices and their customs. Two groups, because of that being different, typically had very different views. And a lot of times the Hebrews and Hellenists, even outside of the church, let alone within the church as well, because of that, due to the fact of differing cultures, they had different styles and perspectives. They approached things differently. So often they were very critical of one another. And they would get upset with one another. And, you know, you're, you're trying to be too relevant. And then the hell is saying, no, look, you're stuck in the Stone Ages. I mean, catch up with the times, man. I mean, and there was kind of this conflict because of these differences of culture and custom. And can I say in any church, there will always be differing subcultures. There should be. There should be those who are younger and there should be those who are older. There should be those from different customs and practice and socioeconomic statuses, both rich and poor. Those of different races and ethnicities that are representing the body of Christ. And in any church, therefore, when you have those various groups and subcultures, people see things differently. They want to do things differently. They would take a different approach because of their culture, their customary way of how they view things. And look, we need to realize we all love Jesus and we're in the same family. And rather than resenting and resisting our differences, instead we should learn to respect and appreciate the differences and how they complement one another. And it's a way for us to learn how to practice love and patience and how to learn from one another and realize sometimes maybe my approach isn't right. Maybe that approach is right. Uh, and it's a way for us to be able to learn and mature in that way. Whatever was transpiring, we're not sure, but a clear problem arose as this complaining was happening. And again, it says they were complaining because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, here's the thing. Either that was really happening, and maybe it was, maybe that was legitimately happening, or from what I've seen in church life, maybe they perceived it was happening. Maybe they felt like their widows were being neglected as compared to the Hebrew widows. Either way, it caused one group to start complaining about the other group. You know, the tip, they are blank. Or, or you know, we don't think that blank. Or why is it that they always have to blank? Now, again, I know it's hard to envision this in a church. But it actually did happen historically. And here's the real secret. It still happens presently. 
It really does. Where again, just pick your poison, whatever subject, whatever. Sometimes complaints arise. People express their displeasure about things. You know, they're frustrated with something. They indicate their disapproval or disagreement with something that's going on or how something is done or how something is not done. So these are just as modern realities of what they're happening. Regardless of the details, notice this problem or dispute has to be addressed. And that's what we now see going on here. And this is critical because if it is not addressed, it would cause division in the church. And that's not healthy. And here's the reality, ladies and gentlemen, Satan loves this kind of stuff to be able to manipulate hurt feelings and misunderstandings and people get offended and then they just have wrong reactions and the flesh gets involved. And if no godly resolution is implemented, it's something that causes much greater issue and deteriorates into something much worse. So verse two, in light of this, it says the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said to them, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. So notice the issues brought to the attention of the church leadership at that time the apostles who then prayerfully and wisely implement a good solution listen that was in the best interest of everybody not just in the best interest of one group but in the best interest of everybody and that's what we see happening the church leaders take the lead as they should guiding the process to seek a solution it says there in verse Two, look at it, it says the 12, that's the leadership, the apostles at that time, the 12 summoned the rest and gave counsel how to handle the situation. They made an assessment in light of maintaining the spiritual health of the church. That's why they say in verse two, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, when the Bible refers to there, the apostles, keep in mind, they functioned in that day as the early church got off the ground. They functioned in a way of what we just consider today spiritual leaders. Typically today, what we would refer to as, as in the local church, our pastors or our elders, those who are providing spiritual governance and guidance and direction to the church. And as spiritual leaders, they were responsible for the oversight and development of the spiritual health of the body of Christ, of the church. And so here we see they recognize it would not be good or wise for us to be overly occupied in practical affairs in such a way that it leads to the neglect of us focusing on the spiritual care and the development of those who are a part of the church family. And so because of that here, they make this statement in verse two. They say it's not desirable that we should leave, that is neglect, abandon the ideas, forsake or depart from giving attention to the word of God and serve tables instead. Other translations render that statement this way. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Another translation renders that phrase. We apostles should spend our time preaching and teaching the word of God, not administering a food program. So the indication here is an assessment really of just proper priorities. 
of the leadership using wisdom to recognize, look, there is a proper priority before God and in the best interest of his people. When they say it's not desirable for us to leave the ministry of the word of God to operate a food program, they're not by that word desire saying and indicating a lack of interest in wanting to do it. They're not saying that we don't desire to do that kind of stuff. It's just not our our interest. That's not what they're saying, nor that it's unimportant or they're unwilling. They're not saying we're above such work or that's below our pay grade because we're leaders. And we don't do that kind of stuff. I mean, we're, we're leaders and, and, and others. That's not what they're indicating, that we don't do this kind of practical, menial work, or that it was inferior or less important than the work that they were doing in their everyday ministries. Again, let me just emphasize very clearly, any godly leader, when I read in John 13, that wants to behave and lead like Jesus Christ, should be willing to do any humble form of service. In fact, that's what they should be most inclined to first, in such a way where they're willing to do whatever it takes for the Lord's people to be taken care of until others begin to realize maybe we should take care of that so that they have enough time to take care of things that are going to get distracted from them ministering the word of God to people. Any humble leader and godly leader should do these things. So they're not saying we're above this. It's, we don't desire to do that. That's not what the text is telling us here. What they're saying when they say it's not desirable, they're saying it would not be good. It would not be beneficial for us to leave the you know, giving of our attention to the word of God. It would not be in line with God's desires for your best interest and welfare spiritually for us to therefore stop and neglect or abandon the preparation and teaching and sharing of the word of God and giving our attention to that and instead serve tables that is handling the food distribution or you know the administration of the funds and how those things were managed in a way to do these practical works of love and ministry the implication they're recognizing and identifying is with limited time it is not good or beneficial for those who would be functioning in that role of spiritual leadership to be overly engaged in certain practical affairs and, and practical duties of church life and ministry at the expense of not giving time then, therefore, to the ministry of the word of God, that that would not be in the best interest of anyone. For example, leading and operating a food bank or doing practical tasks. And right, look, the, the church as the body of Christ, and as a, in some ways it does function like a household, like a family. There are tasks and things that need to be done. There are practical things. There's a building to be taken care of if you have the privilege of having a building. And if you don't, then, you know, and I've been on that side of it too, where prior to having a building, somebody's got to come in early and set up chairs and tear down chairs and run wires for us. There are lots of practical things to be done. There are bathrooms to be cleaned and make sure the building functions right and is the heat on and is the air conditioned on and our bulletins made and our bulletins folded, our trash cans dumped, are all the crumbs cleaned up from the children's classrooms after they ravage our house just like they do at your house, right? I mean, there are all these practical things. Walls get scuffed up and so they need to be repainted and, and all these things that are just practical, logistical things. Money comes in, money goes out, bills get paid, Things that happen that are practical, logistical things of operating a family, a business, all these kind of things. And, and, and it's important that that recognition be made. And it's possible, I don't know, maybe that was starting to happen here in the early church. 
Maybe this was starting to happen. And at this point, it was becoming too much and the apostles were becoming overly engaged and weren't operating efficiently in the spiritual care and ministry they could be because they were overly occupied. Or it could be that it was just a temptation. The apostles could have done that work, but that would have caused a greater problem. So thankfully, the leaders here, when this issue arises, were able to be wise enough to realize that spiritual care and development should be, listen, the main focus of the entire church. And that's what the leaders are trying to get through here to the congregation as a whole because without spiritual care and development and focusing on people's spiritual development, everything else falls apart in a church family if you don't keep the focus on the main thing. The primary function of us as a church family is not to get a lot of practical things done, is to make sure that we're loving and worshiping and walking with Jesus and that we're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is the outward expression of that service and practical? Of course. But if we put all of our emphasis on that and keeping all the gears running right and we never put the gas in the tank, if you understand what I'm saying, the car is going to break down. It's never going to go anywhere. And so here, because of that, the leaders realized some priorities had to be established and observed and doing good things sometimes can be the thief of doing the best things. And this applies in this situation. Certainly, these pastors and elders in the church setting needed to be careful not to get overly engaged. That's why they say in verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In other words, what they're saying is, Others can focus on that ministry, the widow's ministry, the benevolence. They can focus on that ministry and we should focus on our ministry. We're all ministering, but there was just this recognition of the value of priority and making sure the church didn't get out of balance. So after stating a wise principle in light of this situation, the solution they propose is in verse three. They say, therefore, brethren, in light of the fact that we shouldn't get pulled away from spiritual care and ministry. Therefore, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So they instruct, notice that certain men from within the congregation should oversee this ministry of serving the tables and taking care of the food distribution program for the widows, things of that nature. In other words, as I said, though the apostles could do that, they were competent and able to do that. They weren't above it. What they're realizing is, you know what? It's also equally true that other people could do that. And other people can handle that too. And honestly, maybe other people could actually do it better than we could do that. Maybe they'd be even more suited for something like that and it would be more efficient. Uh, and again, only a few are going to be called and ordained by God for the ministry and function, let's say, of being a, a pastor teacher. But many can all engage in any different form of ministry. And so there was this reality. Look, those who are genuinely called to be pastors and teachers and doing those things and providing spiritual care and oversight and shepherding God's people may be few and far between, but everyone can engage in some form of service. And so perhaps we should recruit them. So the congregation was told, seek out seven men from among the fellowship, those within the church who could be approved by the leadership. And then notice, they say, we will appoint them 
to oversee this business. In other words, it was ultimately the spiritual leaders who were to then acknowledge, hey, these are the right ones and to appoint other leaders to oversee. And notice they give some guidelines here in verse three, kind of criteria for the type of men they were to look for to provide oversight to this particular area of ministry that was an operation. Three criteria are mentioned and notice there's no reference there. Find the most educated and, and highly credentialed individuals with solid degrees. Not mentioned there. No mention of, you know what, why don't we find the most successful businessmen in the church who have just excelled in their career, they'd be great to take over this ministry. There's no mention here of who's been in the church the longest and has seniority, they definitely should get the votes. There's none of that. What is referenced here is three criteria. We see them in verse three. The first thing is that they find men of good reputation. Men of good reputation, that is those men who are well-respected in the church, they're quality examples. They have a good track record of living well. They have godly character, the idea is. People in the church family admire them for their solid spiritual life. They're men who are trustworthy and reliable, not questionable, not undependable, not up one week and then disappear for four weeks and then back for two weeks. No, that they're, they're steady. They're reliable, stable men. They have a good reputation. They can be trusted and therefore they'll be more easily respected in a leadership role. Because people see that and they have a good reputation and therefore people are willing to function under their direction. Secondly, it says they also were not just to be men of good reputation, but men full of the Holy Spirit. That indicates they were deeply spiritual men. They were men who really loved the Lord and just loved God and walked closely with God and they walk in the Spirit. They live yielded to the Spirit's influence directing their life. They're those who walk in step with the power of the Holy Spirit and they realize, look, I can't do anything. I can't even fold a bulletin without the power of the Holy Spirit helping me to do it straight and make the bulletin look nice. I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life to be able to serve. And they see every form of church work and ministry as deeply spiritual because it's all for God. And so that they would be men who are spiritual men. And thirdly, it says that they would also be men who are full of wisdom. Now that indicates that they're very practical men, full of wisdom. Wisdom is the, the implementation of knowledge. And there are a lot of people that are very highly educated fools, right? I mean, it's because you're smart doesn't mean you have wisdom. Wisdom is the practical application of information, and so here, they were to be deeply practical, men with good common sense reasoning and how they handle things, how they approach matters, that they were able to be entrusted with something and, and they're good stewards, they're resourceful, they know how to solve problems. If you give them a task or responsibility, they're very efficient in how they take care of things. They're, they're reliable, they're responsible, they, you know, they, they make sure that they're good at administrating what they need to. And I love this balance here. Full of the Holy Spirit, very spiritual and very practical. A balance of both and that, that were needed. And notice, if you would, those in the church, even who are taking care of the practical aspects of church life and ministry, still were to be very spiritual men. Those, it says here, who were serving tables, handling money, doing practical works, doing hands-on stuff, material, physical labors, they were still to be very godly men. 
They were to be deeply spiritual, doing it for God, because again, all ministry matters to the Lord. And it should all be done to the glory of God and being led by God. And, and look, the more better and efficient and well done, even practical things are done. Let me tell you something that supports and contributes to the efficiency of the more spiritual things, the teaching of the word of God, the overseeing of worship ministry. Because if not, guess what? Those who would be teaching the word of God and overseeing and doing the more spiritual aspects are going back and redoing what wasn't done well. Because those who did practical stuff thought, well, I mean, all I do is dump trash cans. So, I mean, what happens if I forget one or two? And, And we shouldn't have that attitude. What we do is we all function together like a body. What if one part of your body just thought, well, what I do isn't very, it's not very worthwhile. Right? And so if the whole service, my arm just kept going like this because it was just kind of mad it wasn't getting enough attention. Well, that'd be kind of weird, right? Wouldn't it be kind of distracting all service long if my arm was just, I'm just an arm. I, don't, I wish I could be his mouth. It just, I, don't, I wish I could be his mouth. <laughs> we shouldn't be like that. Our heart should be everything that we do cooperatively complements and functions together in such a way that there's progress. If the CEO of a successful business has to spend three hours a day going down and fixing problems in the mailroom, the company's not going to do real well, right? See, this is the idea here. And so they recognize this, the church family realizing these things, and they say, we'll appoint these men, these seven men over this business, verse 4, but we, the idea is in, in contrast, but we, we will continue to give ourselves, they say, continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, there's that principle. That will enable the, the apostles, the leaders, the pastors to give their fuller attention to be devoted to prayer. That was a primary ministry they should be engaged in. And to the ministry of God's word. They should be giving themselves, the apostles, the pastors, the elders, they should be giving themselves, notice, continually, it says, to spending time in prayer, both for people and with people. Those who function in those capacities of ministry typically tend to know what's happening in people's lives because people are talking to them and having conversations and calling them and sharing what's going on in their lives and they should have the ability to devote time then to pray with those people or to know what's going on and be praying for people and praying for families. They should be devoting themselves, pastors and elders, to praying in general for the spiritual health and welfare of the church, praying for God's direction and leading for where the church is and how to handle things, praying for decisions so they can receive guidance from the Lord and lead effectively and lead the church in the direction the Lord wants. They should also be continually giving their foremost attention and time to the efforts of the ministry of God's word, putting in the necessary labor of the many hours it takes to sit before the Lord, to study His Word, to prepare, to be ready to present that which I've received from the Lord, I give unto you in the delivery and teaching and explanation of the Word of God to nourish people spiritually. In the same way the widow distribution nourished people physically, and that was loving and important, the church needs to be nourished spiritually and fed well. 
in such a way that it's sustained and healthy and strong, spending time preparing for various meetings of you know, communicating the word of God, spending time in God's word regularly so that the, the pastor or the spiritual leader is knowledgeable in the word of God so when people have questions, they can answer biblically. And when they try to address things, they can be competent to lead biblically. And when situations arise where people want to meet and talk for counsel, they can give biblical counsel. Not just here's a few ideas, or I think I remember this from my psychology class in high school. No, that they can give biblical, godly counsel. And that comes from time devoted to prayer and being in the Word of God. It's a wonderful dynamic when a pastor and a church recognize that God-given pattern in the Word of God and are sensitive to that in the way that they operate in church life. And it's a wise thing sometimes when churches, and we all do on occasion, make adjustments that we see are necessary so that we stay on target with, with God's design like that, so that we can continue to be effective. And notice, if you would, as this is being described here, notice that really structure was implemented in the church when it was needed. Please take notice. They're doing some organizing now. They're starting to create structure. Let's appoint seven men over this. Structure and organization is starting to happen. But notice they're implementing structure and organization when it was necessary, when it became required. That's when they did it. That's an important balance. When organization and structure is needed, it's important to establish it. And we should pay attention to that and be good stewards. Sometimes we need to organize and implement some structure for things to not get bogged down and so things can move forward. Other times, I think the mistake can be made on the other side. Sometimes we too prematurely want to try and overly organize something, right? A church has 20 people and they have six assistant pastors. And you're going, what? There's 20 people in the church. Yeah, we we kind of do that. We want, And it's almost like we want to create a plan, like a business model, so we have our methods and core values and principles and visions, and you're thinking, uh, we just started two weeks ago. We're trying to get a coffee pot still. I mean, like, let's just teach the Bible and get a coffee pot. Why do we have a five-year model? And, and again... We have to be careful because we can make this mistake. Sometimes we neglect structure and organization. Sometimes we can prematurely rush that. And I think that same balance applies in your life. It's the same principle. Be sensitive. Sometimes in your life, maybe you need to get a little more organized. Maybe that's why you're struggling. Maybe you need to get a little more structure in your life. But sometimes we so overly organize and overstructure everything, that's why everybody in the family is miserable. Because there's too much structure. Just love and hang out with each other. Cut back on the structure a little bit. And so there's great wisdom in recognizing this. So verse 5 says, when this was implemented, notice this, the saying pleased the whole multitude. That's called a church miracle. Right there. Nothing else need be said. Everybody said, hey, what's in the best interest of all? We agree with that. That's great. Verse 7, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom then they then set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. So, so they select seven men to officially appoint. Take notice, 
in the list there, verse 5, that all seven men that are chosen, those names, if you didn't take notice, they're all Greek names, not Hebrew names. Now, why is that interesting? Because if you remember back, who had the complaint and the concern about the ministry issue and what was going on? It was the Hellenists. It was the Greek cultured Jews. They were the ones who had issue. So I find this very interesting. The concern and burden was on their heart, so it seemed to matter to them deeply. They felt something needed to be done. And so when they went through this process, they thought, you know, this really seems to matter to you since you're complaining about it. You seem deeply concerned why isn't or why shouldn't or we... So they thought to themselves, you know what? Since you've seen the problem, maybe you should get involved to be the solution. Since it seems to be something that you recognized, maybe you should take the initiative to function in that capacity. And can I say, that is often a really good pattern. That is often a very good pattern. Sometimes people see a situation that needs to be addressed and they indicate, hey, that, that needs, well, why this? Or, and they identify a problem or a situation, but yet they don't want to offer to do anything. They just want to be problem detectors. They just want to identify what's wrong or see something that should be being done or taken care of, but they want others to take care of it. The better pattern is if it matters so much to you, maybe you should be the one to take responsibility for it. Maybe that's an indication that you're the best person to address that need. And we don't know a whole lot about these men in this list here in regards to what their lives became. We have their names. We do know that two of them, both Philip and Stephen mentioned here, were faithful in serving tables and down the road, the Lord entrusted their sphere of ministry to a much greater degree. Stephen, we'll see as we go on, becomes someone who's a great defender of the faith. He's preaching the word of God. He's having miracles done through his life. And what did he start out doing? Serving tables. But he was faithful and God increased his boundaries. Philip, the Bible tells us, becomes a great evangelist. And look, when it comes to ministry, don't seek great things for yourself. Just whatever you're able to do, whatever task or role you take on or you're asked to do, everything's important. So whatever assignment you take on, do it well. Do it faithfully and do it thoroughly. Jesus said, whoever can be faithful in what's little or least will also then be faithful in much. The same applies the other day. By the way, if you can't be faithful in something simple and you dismiss it and are sloppy and irresponsible with it, then sometimes Jesus says, look, if you can't even do that, why would you think you should be entrusted to do more? Our heart should be faithful in whatever little opportunity we have for the glory of God. So they pick these men, and in verse 6 we see them being appointed, hands being laid on them, to identify them. These are men God's chosen for this. It's kind of publicly recognized. They say, look, we, we want to identify the Lord's hand is on you for this. And then it says they prayed for them. And they just asked God, help them, bless them, give them wisdom, how to, to exercise this food program with good judgment and in a fair way that's equitable to every way and that they're sensitive to everybody from each culture and that they would use good wisdom and be good stewards. So they just begin to lay hands on and pray for them as they're kind of being appointed. And look at the outcome, verse 7. Then the word of God spread. The number of disciples was multiplying greatly in Jerusalem and a great, it says, many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So look at the outcome 
of addressing a situation and finding a godly solution. It says that the ministry of God's word became even more influential among them. The word of God spread. And in a church family, that should be what all of our end goal and desire is. Hey, what we all want more than anything is what can we all do collectively together, we don't care who gets the glory, to, to get the word of God out there. That the word of God would be more influential and spread. And it says as well, there was an increase again in conversions. It says a great number of disciples, again, was multiplied in their city. And again, as we function as we should in our priorities, the spirit of God is free to move. And what's even more wonderful, it says, and even many of the priests, verse 7, were obedient to the faith. The Bible takes note of that. Again, who were the priests? They were the religious leaders. And they were now getting saved. Imagine that. Priests were people who wore robes and did their religious duties, but a lot of them weren't even right with God. And now people who were religious were getting right with God. And they're realizing, wow, this religious stuff's not enough. We need to get right with Jesus and obey what it means to put faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, even in good churches where good things are happening, challenges are always going to arise. And let me encourage you, uh, let me just strongly encourage you, don't overreact in immaturity. Something real, legitimate, I understand that, false doctrine. Something to, there are times when, okay, that is just something we need to move on. I understand that. But too often as believers, we, we overreact in immaturity like children. And an issue arises that's something just that's normal every day, things that are going to happen like they do in a family, and people kind of have that attitude like a spoiled child. Well, I'm done, I'm done, leave my, leave my, taking my toys and I'm going home. I'm going somewhere else. I'm going to play with them. Well, the same thing's going to happen there. It's called practice your theology. It's called lab work. Oh, this is what it means to be patient with somebody. This is what it means to pray and talk through things together. This is what it means to be offended and not overreact in the flesh. These are chances for us to grow, to learn, to adjust. And when a church functions efficiently like it's supposed to and everyone's engaged doing some part, things begin to happen in a very wonderful way. Hey, this morning, let me ask you in light of this text, what might the Lord have you do to help in spreading the word of God? What might be your part to see more people get saved? Here you begin to see the beginnings, really, of the distinction, even in the Bible, of roles such as elders and deacons, those who oversee practical things for the Lord and those who take care of the spiritual aspects of the church life and church ministry. You see it beginning to unfold. And let me leave you with this final encouragement. Beware, even as you see in this text, beware of becoming overly engaged in practical service to the neglect of prayer and the Word of God. Because even Christians can do that sometimes. We love to work and do all kinds of work, but don't ever let your work become the thief of your worship. The Word of God and prayer is first. The outflow of that is work and service as the Lord directs us. Let's stand.